These are the true accounts of the legendary women that became the most feared, dangerous flyers of World War II. The Germans couldn't shoot them down. They swore they were impossible to kill. They didn't believe they were human, so they called them the Night Witches. My name is Gabrielle Pickle, and I'm a producer and huge history buff. And I'm Meg Mesmer, a producer and huge advocate for untold female stories. Every episode will be told through the lens of one character, but each character is a combination of many women's stories. Marina. Introduction. Russia's Amelia Earhart. A legend. She was arguably the most famous woman in Russia on the onset of World War II. Marina Ruskova never met a challenge she couldn't conquer. She was the first female navigator ever in the Soviet Air Force. She was also the first female instructor at the Air Academy. And in 1938, she had become the idol of an entire generation when she and two other women flyers made aviation history. She and her two friends, Valentina and Polina, set an international women's record for a nonstop 26 and a half hour flight over 6,000 kilometers, crossing all of Siberia. They were called the Winged Sisters for this flight. On the latter end of their flight, the women lost radio transmission. It became so cold that the lubricating oil in their electric transformer froze, and they were left with only the stars to navigate. They were using oxygen tanks to breathe. And because they sat in different compartments, they could only communicate through handwritten notes delivered by a vacuum tube. With under an hour of flying time left to get to their destination, the women hit a snowstorm and they had run out of fuel. It was not looking good. Valentina, who was piloting, couldn't maintain the height of the plane. The girls tried to lighten the load by throwing whatever they could out of the aircraft, but the plane was losing altitude. They had to make an emergency landing. Marina, who was navigating, knew their approximate location, and because of where she was sitting in the nose of the plane, she knew she would definitely die if they crashed. So the pilot ordered her to jump. She grabbed some chocolate, matches, a revolver, and a hunter's compass. I love her priorities. <laughs> she pulled her parachute around her and threw herself out of the plane into the harsh, freezing, swampy Siberian forest. Once they crashed, a nationwide search began, including over 6,000 villagers and local hunters, along with 50 planes. A few days after the crash, they found Valentina and Polina standing on the wings of their crash plane, waving to the sky. But it wasn't until 10 days later, after surviving alone in the freezing Siberian wilderness, eating only berries and mushrooms. And chocolate. And chocolate. I mean, that went probably, what, day Pretty one? <laughs> probably. Then an exhausted marina was found and carried out on a stretcher. Reunited, the winged sisters made a triumphant entry into Moscow with tens of thousands of people cheering for them. All three were made heroes of the Soviet Union, but it was Marina's bravery that made her a legend. Stalin awarded her the Gold Star Hero of the Soviet Union. They were the first women to ever receive the award. And because of this, Marina was given access to many high-ranking political figures, including none other than Joseph Stalin. Chapter 1, Personal Life 
Marina Raskova didn't always actually want to be a flyer. Her early goal was to become a musician and an opera singer like her father. That's kind of a wild career turn. I know, right? In 1919, when she was seven, her father was hit by a motorcycle and died. This, along with an ear infection, left her unable to sing. But it led to her decision to quit music and devote herself to studying chemistry and engineering in high school. Another big turn. Yeah. Well, and just so everybody knows, like in Europe and Russia at this time, high school was basically kind of college. So you decided what you wanted to do for your life when you were, you know, in eighth grade. I did not know that. Yeah, that was the thing. Um, After graduation in 1929, she helped her family by starting to work in a dye factory as a chemist. She married an engineer that she met there. His name was Sergei Roskov and changed her name to Roskova. Um, a year later, she had a little girl, Tanya. So she was a mother, which seems odd for everything else that happens, but I think it's kind of lovely. The following year in 1931, with a newborn, she reenters the workforce and starts as a draftswoman at the Aero Navigation Laboratory at the Air Force Academy, and everything changes. This is when her life took a turn for the remarkable. This aviation bug hit her like so many of the Soviet women in the 1930s. She started training to be first a female navigator in the Soviet Air Force. A year after that, she started teaching at the Zakovsky Air Academy, also a first for a woman. She taught male and later female students military navigation techniques. She was the subject of skepticism by so many of her male students, duh, of course, but she obviously proved herself capable time and time again. Later, the Academy sent Ruskova to the Central Flying Club to receive pilot lessons. When Ruskova's training ended, she became a flying instructor and was allowed to teach command personnel advanced navigation. All of this took a toll on her home life, and in 1935, she divorced after only five years of marriage. But it would be three years later that she would rise up and set so many flight records, including the long-distance flight across the Siberian wilderness, making her a legend. She would become a celebrity idolized by girls all over the country and breaking glass ceilings for women everywhere. Divorce doesn't look so bad. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. Chapter two, when Germany struck. Three years after her world record, Hitler attacked the Allied Soviet Union. He obliterated their army in a surprise attack without any declaration of war. In the first two months of the German attack, the Allied Soviets lost over 700,000 soldiers, half of their fighter planes, a fifth of their tanks, and four-fifths of their long guns. The Allied Soviets struggled to fight back, but they had a secret weapon in Marina Raskova. She had paved the way for women in the air as a national hero and decorated pilot. And now she was about to do it again. As the Nazis burned their way across the country toward Moscow, Marina started petitioning for women to be allowed in combat roles, specifically in the Soviet Air Force. She repeatedly pleaded with the government to grant permission for all female aviation regiments. And they repeatedly said no because women have no place in combat. But by August and September, half of the country had been kidnapped, murdered, starved, or were running for their lives. In the siege of Kiev, people were literally eating each other to survive. 
Others lived on boiled shoe leather, and children ran in the streets as gangs with bloated bellies hunting for rats to consume so they could survive. That's it was such dire straits. Such a crazy picture to think about. I mean, I literally woke up thinking, having, having a dream about kids running in the streets trying to find a rat to eat. I have a five-year-old, so it just really hit home for me. It's a horrific picture. And this was happening for the majority of Russia at the time. Ruskova made a public speech on September 8th, 1941, to an all-female crowd calling for the women to rise up and fight. She would not take no for an answer. The Soviet woman. She is the hundreds of thousands of drivers, tractor operators, and pilots who are ready at any moment to sit down in the combat machines and plunge into battle. Dear sisters, the hour has come for harsh retribution. Stand in the ranks of the warriors for freedom. The speech is credited as being the turning point for Stalin. One month later, October 8, 1941, Stalin reluctantly agreed to Marina's request and ordered the formation of three all-female air squadrons, the 221st Aviation Corps. One of her fellow female officers said that Marina was the only woman <laughs> in the world who could have made Stalin say yes and feel good about it. Marina's office was immediately inundated with requests from women who wished to fly and fight. Marina told a colleague in confidence, no, listen, it's most important. This conversation is strictly between us. The decision has been made about the formation of the Women's Comet Aviation Regiments. This matter has been dragged out for an incredibly long time. I had to appeal to the Commissar to ask him to speed up the decision on this question. He promised to support the proposal, and he fulfilled his promise. Now, can only turn out successfully. Marina, with her stunning rise in aviation, her accomplishments and her drive, was the most important force in the establishment of the Women Air Force, and now she had to be successful. Chapter 3, Recruitment. There were to be three air regiments each with three squadrons of 10 aircraft. Not only would all the pilots be women, but all of the mechanics, engineers, and support personnel would be women too. It was around 1,000 women in total. Marina put out a call on the Radio Moscow for volunteers. You are to be frontline pilots, just like the men. Those who wish to volunteer should write to my office without delay, bring suitable clothing, if you are selected for training, you will not be returning home. The response was overwhelming. Every day, postal deliveries brought sacks full of applications. It was like Christmas. <laughs> like Marina was Santa, but for a <laughs> war. Anyway, um, as and the hero of the Soviet Union and her small staff would literally sit in their tiny, tiny office late into the night sifting through flight records and application letters, deciding on the approximately 2,000 women that would be summoned for interviews. The time for the interviews had come. Marina sat at her desk. 
It was clear that the great flyer was nervous about the whole recruitment business, too. She could hear them singing outside, girls arm in arm singing as they pranced into the square to meet Marina and beg her to fly in their air regiment. Marina was a shy person, and the girls staring at her open-mouthed in worship of their hero made her uncomfortable in her own skin. Nadia and Larissa were two of the first interviews. She had the biggest, clearest blue eyes. I know if I had been a man, I would have fallen in love with her straight away. It was a bit like a schoolgirl crush on a gym mistress. Marina looked at their flight logbooks and questioned them about their flying backgrounds for about mm, 10 minutes, paused. Then she looked straight to them, her professionalism sliding away, and she said candidly, aren't you frightened to go to the front? Don't you know that these bad men on the other side will be shooting at you? Not if I shoot at them first, Major Raskova. She pressed them. The girls I do choose must understand beyond any doubt whatsoever that we're fighting against men. And they must themselves fight like men. If you're chosen, you may not be killed. You may be burned so your own mother would not recognize you. You may be blinded. You may lose a hand, a leg. You will lose your friends. You may be captured by Germans. She asked them as if she didn't understand herself why they would come. Do you really want to go through with this? The girls nodded. Even though they heard what she was saying, they didn't fully understand or believe that it would happen to them. Marina leaned back in her seat and stared at the young women for a few moments. And then she smiled broadly. <laughs> you are my first recruits. Report here tomorrow for further orders. Good luck, comrades. She shook their hands and saluted. They tried to salute, but didn't really know how, their arms flapping around. And then, as soon as the girls were outside the door, they shrieked with excitement. And so it began. Chapter four, combat training. Hot-headed, strong-willed, and ready for her greatest challenge, Marina had the task of recruiting the best female pilots and turning them into soldiers. But this wasn't as straightforward as breaking world records. <laughs> Faced with doubt and pressure from her male colleagues, she struggled from inside the ranks to lead women into battle. She had no problem when it was motivating herself. But how could she lead an air force and make ace pilots out of teenage working farm girls? Because they lost so many men so quickly, the war required Marina to compress two years of combat training into six months. Six months. She's a beast. <laughs> it was an impossible task. These women were barely women at all. It's insane. Marina was to break up the women into three flying regiments. The first was the 586 Fighter Aviation Regiment, which was the only group of women that were fighter pilots. They were expert pilots that would fly fighters and escort shooting down enemy aircraft. The second was the 587th Bomber Aviation Regiment, which would strategically bomb Germans by day, so a day bomber unit. The final was the 588th Night Bomber Aviation Regiment that would rule the night. These all-female night bombers would become 
legit the most famous bombers of the entire Eastern Front. Marina and her second-in-command wrote up their assessments of these volunteers. They had to decide who to partner up as pilot and navigator, whose brain would work quickly in navigation exercises, who would react most calmly during a crisis as a pilot. But what the recruits really wanted to know most of all was who was going to be a fighter pilot. Because that was apparently the most badass. I mean, if Maverick hasn't taught us anything, yeah, of course, that's the coolest. In April, Marina pinned up the notice boards of a list of regiments to which the women had been assigned. There were celebrations and tears, but their fates were sealed. No one showed her disappointment more than Larissa. I was bitterly disappointed that I was a highly experienced pilot before the war started, an instructor, but the trouble was that I was also an experienced navigator. So I landed what I considered to be the most humble and least glamorous job, navigating a little PO2 at night. I felt humiliated. I dropped six separate letters into Marina's office over the next few days. I didn't have the courage to see her face to face. They detailed my flying background and begged her to not assign me to navigating on night bombers. Marina summoned me eventually. I'd never seen her angry before. She made me stand at attention for 10 minutes, told me exactly what she thought of me. Do you really think we're playing war games? Our people are dying out there every day by the thousands. We'll be lucky if we survive the winter. And you whine to me because you're not getting exactly what you want. Now get out of my office. Never let me hear you speak like that again. I managed some sort of salute, and when I was at the door, I felt a hand on my shoulder. She told me to sit down, gave me a clear handkerchief from her breast pocket, and called me Larissa. She explained that I should look upon it as a compliment. I'd been given that job because the new regiment would need navigators with real experience. Maybe it was flattery. Maybe I wasn't as good as a pilot as I thought I was. It didn't matter. The great Marina had said she had needed me, and it worked. I walked out there feeling proud. Perhaps the biggest challenge in leading three combat air regiments was being a mother to the girls. Marina realized that they needed a certain motherly kindness just as much as they needed to be pushed along. She didn't think of herself as a mother figure at first, but these teenagers really didn't give her an option. Even before any of the women were sent to combat missions, they had to bury their first casualties. Four inexperienced pilots were on a training mission when it started to snow. The pilots became very disoriented in the dark and whiteness, unable to tell up from down. There was no horizon. They thought they were pulling up, but they crashed into the ground, and all four died. Raskova chided the commander of the mission, who herself was only 19 years old. Where are your pilots? Dead. Why are you here and where are they? You are flying together. And why are you here and they are gone? As women sobbed beside their coffins, Raskova turned to us saying, My darlings, my girls, squeeze your heart. Stop crying. You shouldn't be sobbing. In the future, you will have to face so many of them that you will ruin yourselves completely. She walked up the lines of aircraft, 
their two woman crews standing to attention in the front of the propellers. She had made a little speech, smiling broadly as she told them that they were no longer students. They were now soldiers. She chatted briefly with each woman, and when she stepped back and returned their salutes, she bade them farewell with the words, happy skies, happy skies. Chapter five, at war. April 1942 is when Ruskova saw her first pilots leave the nest. The 586th Fighter Aviation Regiment was called to the skies. Three squadrons of hotshot aerobatic champions and veteran flight instructors boarded their shiny new Yak-1s and stationed themselves in the rat-infested Anazovka Air Base. Mm -hmm. It's a Russian word. We're just going to move on. <laughs> we are not Russian. We do not speak Russian. <laughs> we plead the fifth, if, if that's an option in Russian. Yeah. Unlike the dive bomber regiment, which was under the care of Roskova herself, all was not well in the chain of command at the 586th. Oh, what's happening? Roskova had agonized over who would command this fighter regiment, finally settling unhappily on Tamara Kazaranova, again pleading the fifth, <laughs> <laughs> a severe woman with important friends in the political world. Mm. She was the political pick. She had never flown a Yak-1 or any other flight or plane. She was completely ignorant, and this is all in quotes, guys. You can check our website for the actual quotes. Completely ignorant regarding technical flying. Quickly, resentment between the more experienced pilots and their commander began. In a move strikingly uncharacteristic of the era's climate of fear and intrigue, a group of veteran pilots rebelled openly, demanding her removal but her high-level connections and her prestigious Order of Lenin Medal rendered her untouchable. It's terrible. Um, and that's when the incompetent commander's darker instincts came out. She started sending the best veteran pilots of this fighter squadron to the front. And by the summer, all of those who had spoken out against her were dead. What a bee! It was a house-cleaning worthy of Stalin himself, who killed millions. Roskova was full of anxiety. No doubt. She had made a terrible mistake and had no idea how to fix it. Marina herself took command of the 587th Bomber Aviation Regiment, the daytime bombers. It was time to fight. When she arrived on the Stalingrad front, winter was here. Temperatures were 40 below. I know most of you guys don't know what that feels like. It sucks. It's cold. It burns. It burns. You can't have skin out. Like, skin cannot be touching the air. Okay, so this regiment, the 587th, 587th, led by Marina, their very first mission was to dive bomb the German troops who were attacking the defenders of a tractor plant. The pilots' hands were so cold, they literally couldn't operate the controls for takeoff. Their mechanics would pass handfuls of snow to the radio operator and navigator who would rub them on the pilot's hands until she could feel tingling in her fingers again enough to launch the plane. 40 below, people. 40 below. Canadians will understand this. <laughs> Americans, not so much. The flyers remembered that there was no opposition on their first mission. Most of the town had already been destroyed by the Germans, so they were just helping to destroy what remained. Seeing the war for the first time and its after effects on their people took a great toll on the women. 
They tried to keep their spirits up with sing-alongs in the bunkers. Some of the women played along with instruments that they had brought with them. It was unheard of for anyone to pull rank. Even Marina Raskova was able to combine her natural authority with a willingness to unwind at the end of a hard day. It was a brutal, brutal experience for these women. We were all girls together. And the longer we were together, the closer we became. There were exceptions, of course, but the majority had this bond. The comradeship was very special. But the strain of living conditions and the weather just compounded the demand on them. The women flew with flu and colds. At least one of them had rheumatic fever for months and refused to report sick as her joints grew stiffer and stiffer. Marina was feeling the strain. She was overworked. She sat every night at a table that served as a desk in her dugout. She worked on regimental reports, studied intelligence briefings, absorbed new tactics that would have to be passed on to her aircrew. She worked herself on tactical ideas. She felt a responsibility to these young women. Though they had yet to lose a single aircraft, she saw the combat reports of the other regiments and knew that the worst was yet to come. Katerina and another woman went to Marina's dugout one evening around nine o'clock. They tapped gently on the door. When there was no reply, they pushed it open and peered inside. She was fast asleep, her head resting on its side on the top of her hands, a pencil still lightly between her fingers. But she was breathing deeply and evenly, obviously asleep. The dugout was neat. Some brightly colored thread lay on top of a piece of cloth. A commander had been attempting some embroidery at some time during the evening. Before she settled at her desk, her pistol hung in its holster over the back of her chair and her flying gear was neatly folded at the end of her bed. A photograph in a brown wooden frame had been knocked over on the desk. The women walked softly across and looked down at the picture. A serious little girl with large dark eyes looked out of the frame. She was holding the hand of a tall man in an Air Force uniform. He was smiling gently to the camera. The women tiptoed out of the night and returned to their bunker. January 4th, Stalingrad. The Soviet allies were finally, finally making progress in the war. There were only about 250,000 Germans left at the 6th Army camp, and they were struggling in the winter. They were on their last scraps of horse meat and running out of ammunition. The Soviet Air Force was actually doing its job for the first time in the war. Heavy snow was falling, but the women's bunkers were warm because they were doing sing-alongs and trading men chocolate for vodka rations, or the other way around. One of the girls, Arena, had a beautiful soprano voice, and the women were taking turns accompanying her on piano. Everyone was relaxed. There was a lot of flirting. Of course. As you can imagine. <laughs> Only one thing clouded their enjoyment. Marina was not in Stalingrad. On this day, she was on a special mission with two other flight crews. They had been due to return before nightfall, but hadn't. It was filthy flying weather, but the girls knew that if anyone was to guide them all to safety in an emergency landing, it would be the experienced Marina. The door of the bunker swung open. A rush of cold air swirled in. They expected to see Marina, but it was the commander of the men's regiment. Everyone stood up as he took off his hat, peeled off his gloves. The girls knew before he even opened his mouth that something was wrong. He didn't know how to begin. They thought maybe the Germans had come with backup. Instead, he pulled out a piece of paper from his pocket. 
It was a typed message from the airfield signal bunker. The message was brutally terse. It said simply, Major Ruskova had been killed when her aircraft crashed. There was a moment or two of complete silence. The girl's faces drained of color and then, everyone started crying. Women burying their faces in pillows with anguish sobbing. How could this have happened to Marina? The men slipped out the door. Nothing they could have said would have helped. In Marina's bunker, the stove had not been lit for several days. Her desk had been cleared of reports. A pen lay on a sheet of blotting paper, and two unopened letters awaited her. One in an uneven childish scrawl. The next day, they found out the full facts of Marina's death. It seemed Marina was just human, as fallible as anyone else. She had, quite simply, made a mistake. Leading the other two aircraft, she had become disoriented in the snow and was lower on the horizon than she thought. Her aircraft had flown straight into the summit of a hill. She was thrown clear and killed outright. Her entire crew died that night. The two other planes had crashed as well, but slightly higher, and had escaped serious injury. They would rejoin the regiment later. The blow to the regiment's morale was inestimable. <laughs> Marina had been their heroine from schoolgirl days and training days, and now their fearless commander. She had been the undying hero, the unifying force, the rallying point to which they all flocked to fight for their country. Her high standards of professionalism had instilled in all of her crews the belief that if they aspired to these levels, they would not only kill the enemy, but they would save themselves. And now she was dead, killed through an apparent pilot error. Most of the women remembered how hard she had been driving herself and how very tired she looked before she had flown off on that special mission. Marina Ruskova died on January the 4th, 1943. She was 30 years old. She received the first state funeral of the war. Her ashes were buried in the Kremlin Wall on Red Square. She was posthumously awarded the Order of the Patriotic War I class. While she did not see combat or the victory of World War II, she was instrumental to Russia's success. Without her, there would have been no female regiments. She trained her pilots to become the most feared, dangerous flyers of World War II, garnering their legendary reputation as the Night Witches. Beloved by her pilots and revered by all of Russia. But who would lead them now? <laughs>